Mother's Day would be a celebration she would never experience. She would never nestle a little one in her arms. She would never know the thrill of tucking her child in and kissing them goodnight. After all, widows can hardly anticipate the thrill of childbirth. We thought we would open the pages of Ruth with our study leader Dave Woodson for one of the most delightful romantic short stories ever penned. Mother's Day is supposed to be like a grandmother that holds a, her new grandchild in her lap and the baby's gurgling and I, I remember when my own mother was living and Janae was just born, my mother had a special way of holding a baby and kind of making it smile. I used to think the baby probably had gas, but the grandmothers swear it's because their personality's developing, you know, and they're smiling. Seeing grandma holding those new precious grandbabies in her lap, that's what Mother's Day is all about. We're seeing a new mother that just brings a baby home from the hospital. And Mother's Day is also a day to reminisce about all those memories and for kids to be able to think through all those things that mom does for them and say thank you. But as our story begins in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, and I want you to turn the book of Ruth, as the couples that we begin to interact with think about Mother's Day, there's three women who are not smiling today. In the book of Ruth, as we begin chapter 1, Mother's Day has been lost. In fact, the whole period, this is the period of the judges, and the book of Judges ends by saying that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And it, it talked about a whole period of chaos. As we begin chapter 1, we begin with a woman named Naomi. And Naomi means pleasant. And she married a man named Elimelech. Evidently, he was a very godly man. In fact, that his name itself means, my God is king. My God is king. So evidently, you've got a young couple that's committed to the Lord. They're growing in him. And they're going to establish a house. And the Lord gives them two sons. Now, evidently, when these sons were born, their names were Milan and Chilean. And in Hebrew, Milan has kind of the idea of a sickly one. And Chilean has the idea of a pining one or one that's kind of weak and sickly and pining away. So evidently, these two little boys, maybe they had some sickness or something when they were born that caused the parents to cry out to God, and they even named him by a name that emphasized the fact they were not strong, robust football players, but they were weak. But the young couple started out with a lot of expectations. And I'm sure that if they had Mother's Day in ancient Israel, this couple would rejoice in the gift of these two boys. But then tragedy struck. You know, life has a way of sucking all the joy out of holidays. In fact, as a pastor teacher, every time we go through a holiday whether it be Christmas or Easter or Mother's Day, for many of you it becomes a time of, of intense difficulty because there's memories that are all in the past. And then some of those memories turn to hurt. And maybe some of you can identify with Naomi and Elimelech and Milan and Chilean because suddenly in the happiness of the holiday of their young life, things started to go wrong. And maybe that's happened to some of your lives. You see, as they went out into married life and they went out into generating a family, their holidays began to waste away because a terrible famine struck. And they couldn't go down to the Sure Value store and pick up a real nice meal for mom. You see, there wasn't any bread in the land. Now, Elimelech had heard that across the river, across the Jordan River, that there was plenty of grain. 
And so he left Bethlehem or the house of bread. And ironically, he left the house of bread to go to the plains of Moab, which ordinarily wouldn't be a place of, of fertility and agricultural prosperity. But there was a famine in the house of bread in the little city of Bethlehem. And so Elimelech, in order to save his family, said goodbye to his family and friends, his extended family. And with Naomi and his boys, he went across the river Jordan to the plains of Moab and he settled in. The boys grew. They were there for more than 10 years. And what Elimelech thought was just going to be a short sojourn away from Bethlehem turned into a funeral service. And Naomi had to bury Elimelech. He died in the land away from the blessing. He died in the plains of Moab, which for an Israelite was not a place of blessing. Well, you would expect that when young men are around young women, and Milan and Chilean had been around the Moabite girls for 10 years now that they lived in uh, the plains of Moab. So they met two Moabite girls named Ruth and Orpah, and they got married. And so we would expect, well, the story is going to improve. In other words, they buried their dad, and they're going to weep over that. But now things are going to get better. But remember, Milan and Chilean were weak boys, and evidently that weakness continued into their young manhood, and of all tragedies, Naomi not only had to say goodbye in death to her husband Elimelech, but she lost her two boys as well. And this terrible turnover, which should never take place. You know, sons are supposed to bury their elderly moms. But now we've got one of those tragic human chaos, disorderly kind of a things. And Naomi, this elderly woman, this elderly mom, has to bury her two boys. Now, in the ancient world, unlike here in the United States, although there's still some of this, some of this feeling of being frightened when you're a widow and you're left by yourself, it's a very frightening thing. And we could have testimony for some of you that have experienced that. And you can identify with how Naomi felt. She just felt like she was left in a foreign country alone without any hope. And then she heard the news kind of filtered across the 35 or so miles, which you might think is just a short way, but you've got to go down 2,000, 3,000 feet down across this rigid path, down to the Jordan Rift Valley, then up about 2,700 feet up the other side. It's rugged territory. There's hardly any water. But somehow the news got across that God had visited his people back in the city of bread, Bethlehem again. And so Naomi comes up with a plan. I'm going to go back home. When in doubt, when you're in trouble, what's a good place to go to? Right? Where do you go? When you're in trouble, you go home. Well, Naomi remembers, man, I'm going to go back where I was raised. I'm going to go back with my people. And so she goes to Ruth and Orpah and she says, Ruth and Orpah, I need to go back to Bethlehem. Now, at first, the two girls say, well, we're going to go with you. We've promised, we've loved you, and you've been our mother-in-law. We've had a great relationship. We're going to go with you. But Naomi has a very persuasive case. And she says, especially to Ruth and Orpah, you're young women. I'm just an old woman. And you can stay here in your land, and you can remarry, and you can recapture the Mother's Day holiday. In other words, you need to stay here with your own people. Because you can find a young husband, and then you can marry again. You could have children, and you could rediscover Mother's Day that way. And Orpah and Ruth say, no, we're going to go with you. So they start walking down the road. They walk a little ways, 
And Naomi argues even more persuasively. She says, girls, listen, if you go with me, your life is going to be destitute. Your life is going to come to an end because there's no hope for you. You're going to be going to a strange country. They don't really even like Moabites over there. And I don't have any more sons. You see, even if I could find a husband this very night, and I had relations with him, and I generated a child, are you going to wait till that boy grows up? The answer was obviously not. There was a hopeless, totally hopeless situation staying with Naomi. Orpah heard the power of Naomi's persuasive argument. She hugged her mother-in-law and she said goodbye and she walked back on the plains of Moab and she walked into oblivion. I don't have any idea what happened to Orpah. But Ruth was cut out of a different cloth. You see, for ten years since she had watched Elimelech and Naomi, she noticed that they worshipped another god. You see, the Moabites worshipped an idol called Kamash, who was a very violent god. He was a very immoral god. But Naomi was a witness, even though she was out of the land of promise, to the worship of the true god. A God who was named Yahweh, that we've learned when we studied, set apart be your name. We learned that the name Yahweh meant the personal God of Israel who is for you, who will enter into covenants with you and will love you. And Ruth was attracted to the worship of the true God. Ruth might have been like some of you, who maybe you were raised in a home where you didn't really know the gospel. You weren't raised maybe knowing the Bible very well. But maybe at school you started coming in contact with a friend that said, hey, come on out to Awana or come on out to youth group. And you began to hear about a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You learned that this whole religious thing didn't need to be just a religion, but it could be a personal relationship. It could be a living Monday through Friday as well as a Sunday morning celebration. It could be a love relationship with the eternal God. Well, Ruth evidently saw some of that in Naomi. And she responded. And evidently she put her confidence and faith in Yahweh, the true God of creation, the God that was the personal God that revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was an incredible thing for a Moabite girl to do. And so when Naomi challenged Ruth to leave, and as Ruth watched Orpah move away and go back to her family, and when she felt this magnetic, unbelievable pull of the undertow to come back into Moab, Ruth said to Naomi the words that almost all of you have heard in the context of a wedding. They're the words of devotion. They're the words of faithfulness. They are appropriate at a wedding, but they're also appropriate to the other companionship relationships that we have. Like a mother-in-law to a daughter-in-law, or a son to a father, or a brother to a brother, or a brother to a sister. And look what Ruth says to Naomi. You've heard the words. It's verse 16, but Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. That's the personal testimony of Ruth. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, and there we use the personal name Yahweh, telling us of Ruth's personal faith. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. 
When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so they went down the 2,000-foot drop. They crossed the Jordan River, probably by the city of ancient Jericho. They walked up through that hill country where the thieves many years later attacked a man in the story of Jesus on the Jericho Road. They went up about, oh, 30 miles or so into the city of Bethlehem. And when Naomi arrived, all the ladies in the city, because all the men were out of the early barley harvest, all the ladies of the city gathered around her. And they said, man, like you could just hear them. They're just talking, talking, talking. Man, Naomi's come back. Naomi's come back. And they said, could this be Naomi? Look how much she's changed. You know, people have a way of telling you that. You know, they look at you kind of funny where they haven't seen you in about 10 or 12 years. And they go, is that you really? Makes you feel really great. And that's what happened to Naomi. And then Naomi said something. She was a great witness in chapter 1. She said, I went out as Naomi, which means pleasant. And that's why if there's any Naomi's in the audience, you've got a great name. It means pleasant or delightful. Naomi says to all of her friends from 10 years past, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. You ever met someone like that? They're really encouraging on Mother's Day. They really are. Don't call me pleasant or delightful. Call me cynical and bitter. The Lord took us away full, and we were blessed, and we had plenty. The Lord God had brought us back empty. What a testimony meaning. Great sharing time. And that's chapter 1. Now, I want you to really feel this, because maybe you're not there this morning, but it's some time in your life you're going to feel that the Lord God of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ has blown it for you. Death can do it. I want you to understand something. Naomi has gotten the big sledgehammers of life against her. The loss of a husband is a sledgehammer of chaos and destruction and death. And it sucks the life out of Mother's Day for you. The loss of two sons are two more sledgehammers. The sledgehammer of poverty, of not having enough to eat, which most of us have never faced, but Naomi was facing that. She was in a very dangerous, destitute situation. And as she arrives home, she is not singing, God is so good, God is so good. Boy, is it great to be back in Bethlehem. She's singing, down in the dumps, I will always go. And she's bitter. And I love the scriptures because it talks realistically about the way that life is. Now, what do you do when you've lost Mother's Day and there's no hope? What do you do when you're really depressed? Well, in chapter 2, we begin the reward for diligent industry. Ruth is an amazing girl. You know what some people do if you're living with a mother-in-law who's bitter and you're living with someone who thinks that God has ruined everything? When you feel that way yourself, what do you do? Well, brothers and sisters, the biggest temptation, if you are like Mara instead of like Naomi this morning, then I want to share with you what you want to do. You want to hole up. You want to sleep all day long. You want to get away from people. The last thing in the world you want to do is be right here with this many people. In fact, when you get really bitter like Naomi, just to be in a crowd drives you nuts. You just want to get away and you want to be by yourself. Because if Satan can get you totally, completely by yourself, he's going to get you. 
And chapter 2 tells us something really important. You see, here's a widow that's really destitute. What do you do when you're destitute? Well, Ruth gets up Monday morning, and she says to her mother-in-law, Mother-in-law, I'm going out, and I'm going to work. And this beautiful young widow who's living with a bitter mother-in-law, she could have tanked, she could have tanked Valium till she was into oblivion, but she didn't. You know what she did? She got up. And some of my very most knowledgeable psychiatrists and psychologist friends will say that's one of the most important things to do when you're bitter, when you're depressed. One of the most important things to do is to get up and start doing some simple, simple things. And that's what Ruth said. In chapter 2, when there isn't any food, Ruth doesn't just sit there and wail and moan. She gets up and she goes to work. You see, in ancient Israel, the Lord was very kind. In ancient Israel, the Lord just wouldn't give people that were destitute a handout. The problem with that kind of an approach is it destroys all of people's identity. It destroys their self-worth. It makes them feel that they're just being controlled and manipulated and they're not worth anything. And God created this in his image, so he wouldn't do that. But what God did do is he told the halves that when their barley harvest in late April was coming due, and they brought their ancient equipment in, it was different than than modern combines and all that, but when they brought their ancient equipment in, they were not allowed to totally clean their field. They couldn't go into the corners. Like when they made their turns with their ancient tractors, They couldn't make those turns just razor sharp. They had to kind of swing wide. They had to leave those corners. And all you guys that do that kind of work know what we're talking about. They also couldn't go back over those fields again. They couldn't send their servants through and sweep it through again. In other words, they had to go through it once and leave quite a bit of residue there. And then those that were destitute, those that didn't have any land, those that didn't have any resources could go into the field and they could glean right behind the harvesters. So Ruth, this beautiful young widow, goes to the field and begins to do exactly that. And some of you can identify with that. You've hauled hay and done all kinds of work, and that's exactly what Ruth is doing. If Ruth was here today, she'd fit right in with our Texas culture because she was a girl that would get right out there in the field and put on a kerchief around her head and pull up her sleeves and go right to work. And that's what she's doing. As she's working, suddenly, there's a real stir among all the workers. And it was kind of like when I used to work construction when the architect used to come on the job. When I walked in the job, nobody did anything except spit tobacco juice at me because I was the carpenter's helper. But when we got word that the architect was going to come, me and everybody scampered and stirred and our superintendent went nuts and we had to get everything cleaned up because the big boss, the guy that was in charge of the job, was coming. It was even worse than when the contractor came. The architect was the one that really had the power. Well, that's what happened among this field that Ruth was gleaning that day. The man gets out of his carriage and he walks to his fields and he says to all of his workmen, May the Lord bless you and keep you today. And Ruth scratched her head and said, Man, what kind of labor relations are these? And all the laborers in the field say, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he have his hand upon you. And Ruth is scratching his head. So I've heard of, of labor management conflict. What's going on here? It was their first introduction to a man of God. His name was Boaz. He was a strong one. 
He was an older guy, not really that old, but he was a mature guy, a little bit on in years, and he's productive, and he's a strong worker, and he controls all of these fields. He has the power, he has the might, but he's a man of God. And he's created a, a working relationship with all of his people that's built on a mutual relationship with God. And maybe that could become a prototype for what the Holy Spirit might do with some of you that are in the marketplace. You know, the Lord Jesus wants to enter into our everyday life and he wants to transform it. I think that we as believers can be like Boaz in the high school, like Boaz in the school system, like Boaz in our neighborhood, and we can create atmospheres that are built on a mutual relationship with the Lord when we go public with our faith. Boaz was a Tom Landry kind of a man that went public with his faith. He wasn't a secret service worshiper of Yahweh. So much so that when he arrived in the morning, he would give the blessing of Yahweh upon those that he was working with. And they would respond because he had such an impact. And the Lord blessed them with that. Ruth saw this. But I want to share something with you, something else. As Ruth is diligently working in the field, she sees Boaz, she sees this testimony, but Boaz saw Ruth. And some of you think that the Bible is kind of a, a way up there kind of a book. It doesn't really know what's going on. The Bible knows all about human nature. It knows all about how men and women interact together. And what the Bible tells in chapter 2 is that Boaz is watching his people work. And he notices over in the corner of the field that there is a beautiful woman who works like crazy. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because he asked one of his servants, one of his managers of his field, who is that over there? Now, men don't make inquiries about a woman like that unless they've already seen her and they've started making some evaluations and there's some magnetic pull that's already taking place. Now, the story gets delightful because what do guys do like that? Well, it comes time for lunch. And Boaz, very discreetly and very much like a gentleman, he says, Ruth, my workman says that you've worked hard all day long. You've only taken a few breaks in the shade. I can see you're really a diligent worker. Why don't you sit right here by me during lunch? So you see, time hasn't changed. And Boaz makes sure she gets enough to eat during lunch. And then he says to her, I don't want you to go to any other fields. Watch out, girls, when they tell you that. I don't want you to go to any other fields. You just stay right here in my field. I've got lots of fields. It can keep you going all through the barley harvest. And as he left, he said to all of his managers, he told the ones that were in charge of his field, he said, you guys make sure nobody touches or in any way abuses Ruth. And the word went out. This woman needs to be treated with a lot of honor, with a lot of respect. Now in the ancient world, that was a very strategic thing. Because she was a vulnerable, innocent, unprotected woman. And Boaz, this great manager of his field, is saying, she is covered. You all be sure to protect her. And the word went out. Ruth goes back flops on the table, the kitchen table, all kinds of barley, four or five times more than she could have ever gotten under ordinary circumstances because Boaz also told his servants, you guys toss some of the good stuff, just toss some extra stuff right in her way and then don't get on her when she picks it up. 
And so we finish chapter 2 with the diligent labor of, of Ruth beginning to provide for Naomi in their time of destitution. You know, we learned some really important lessons about life. Life can hit us with some big blows. Death. And death and the loss of sons can suck all the joy out of Mother's Day. What are you going to do about it? Well, you're going to be tempted like crazy to sit at home and do nothing. One of the wisest proverbs is to work your fields, to know the condition of your flocks. What the Scripture is telling us, and Paul picks up on this idea in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says that the widows should use the gifts that God has given to them. They need to get out and they need to provide. The same thing is said for all of us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul tells the Thessalonians, I have been a model for you. I have modeled the work ethic, an ethic which we are losing in our culture. He says, I have modeled for you the idea of working hard with my hands so that I will not be dependent upon anyone and so that I can be productive. And we as believers need to recapture the ethic of a Ruth, the ethic of a Boaz, and realize that God still honors diligent labor. And also, one of the things that you might not have thought about, diligent labor is one of the greatest ways for you to preserve your mental balance and your emotional balance. It's a good gift of God. When you start to move into really severe depression over the big blows of life, you need to learn to do the simple things. And we need to help one another do the simple things. We also need to be very careful. I want to use another application here. In the modern world, be very, very careful of getting into the routine of working all the time in the concrete situation. Now, chapter 3 is a great chapter. We've learned about the return to the land. We learned about the reward for diligent industry. Let's talk about romance. On Mother's Day, we've got to talk about romance. Chapter 3. You see, the barley harvest is going to be over. The barley harvest only lasts for about a month in ancient Israel. And this is where mother-in-law, wise, experienced mother-in-laws. You see, Naomi starts to put two and two together. Every day, Ruth comes back from the same fields. She comes back with twice as much as she could possibly glean in her own. And Naomi begins to do some checking around. And she discovers some interesting things in the genealogy of Boaz that Boaz is in Elimelech's family. And in ancient Israel, there was a law that usually applied to the brother. You see, if there was a man in Israel who died and left a widow, his brother was supposed to marry that widow, and the first child that was generated would be the son of the deceased brother and carry out his name in Israel. Now, Naomi is very creative. She remembers that ancient principle of the leveret marriage. But Elimelech doesn't have any brothers. That makes a real serious problem. Naomi can't have any more kids because she's too old. And even if she did, Ruth is going to be too old before the boy would grow old enough. She's in a hopeless situation until she starts to look at Boaz's roots. And she realizes that he's a relative of Elimelech and there's some connections there. Now, in the ancient world, they had a great custom. What the guys would do, and we all need to learn to do this. You see, when you work really hard, all month of April, they would work bringing in the barley harvest. And they would get it all gathered 
in these barns. And then it would be time to thrash it and to get it all ready. And what they would do is they would have a great big party. They would all gather down at the barns. All the men would. And they would have a real hard time getting everything gathered in, kind of like getting all the hay in the barn. It was very similar to that. But then right there in these storage sheds, they would have a great big feast. They'd have a big celebration, kind of like a a cookout, you might say. Only they probably, in Israel, they wouldn't have weenies and that kind of thing because that wouldn't be kosher, okay? No, but they would have their own equivalent of a cookout. And then after the men had eaten and had drunk, they would settle down, they'd, they'd sleep out. Now, Naomi knows all this. And because Boaz is the big boss man, he's going to be in his own place after the celebration. He's going to eat a great big meal. He's going to have a real celebration, eating and drinking. And after a man is really full, he's going to lie down in the corner of this harvesting shed, and he's going to sleep. And Naomi comes up with a plan. And this is where the mystery of romance comes in. Naomi's an older woman. And she does what all of you older women are still doing the same thing today. Before a marriage, I've shared with you, I've had only one bride in all the weddings that I've done in the 18 years in the past. I've only had one bride that came in to her wedding with manure on her cowboy boots. Almost all the other, almost all the other brides, you don't even see them all day. Because all of you older ladies are busy. You are busy getting them ready. It's like all of Ahasuerus' servants getting Queen Esther ready for her visit to the king. The Bible knows all about that. So Naomi gives Ruth a bath. She covers her with Chanel number 75. Just drenches her. I mean, this girl, it's expensive stuff. I want to share something. Please don't do that with cheap stuff. It's a fatal, fatal mistake. So Ruth sneaks in. I mean, this, this is like a mystery. It's like an intrigue thing. She comes in. She's decked out in beautiful clothes. She has marvelous Chanel number 45 all over. Sneaks into the barn. Boaz is out like a light with his blankets up, kind of all tucked in around his neck. And Ruth goes and uncovers his feet, which is a really... You know what happens when your feet get cold? And she lies down right on his feet. And then she just waits. Now, I can hardly wait to get to heaven to to ask Ruth, Ruth, what were you thinking when you were lying there in the dark? And then I want to ask Boaz, because the text tells in in Ruth chapter 3 that Boaz in the middle of the night, he gets a jolt. And he wakes up because he looks down there. My dog used to sleep with me when I was a kid. And suddenly you wake up and he'd be taken over the whole bed. You have the big lump there. Well, Boaz wakes up and thinks some animal has come or gotten out of the stall or something. And when he looks down, there's this beautiful, knockout, unbelievable woman right there at his feet. And she says to him, she said, you are my kinsman, do your duty. And all this unspoken communication that goes on between a man and a woman becomes fruition. And Boaz says to this young woman, he says, you have done the honorable thing. He says, you could have had Ruth, you could have had all the young men. You could have had all the handsome bows. They're all sitting at your feet. And you chose an old codger like me. Because you're a faithful woman. 
He said, I have known, I've watched you, I've seen the choice that you made to become a worshiper of Yahweh. And I respect that choice. And I will fulfill my duty. And he said, stay here tonight. And in moral purity, contrary to what a modern story would read, in moral purity, Boaz did not touch her sexually that night. She slept at his feet. They woke up early in the morning before the sun came up. He gave her the food that she would need for the next day so she wouldn't have to work in the fields. And he secretly sent her back to totally preserve her reputation. There's so much story in here of faithfulness and of of chivalry and honorability and strong masculinity that's under control, even though there's tremendous, passionate, romantic, sexual love in this story. It's all wound together in a beautiful, beautiful harmony. And Ruth goes running back in, and you girls can remember, you know, when you're in, right there, when you're first in love and you first got that promise, and Ruth comes in, and Naomi's saying, tell me what happened, tell me what happened. And Ruth explains what I just explained to her, and Naomi says something very wise at the end of chapter 3. She says, the man will not rest until it's done. Now, girls, if a man promises you that he loves you, but he never gets off the dime, don't marry him. Please don't marry him. He won't get off the dime the rest of his life. Because if a man can't get off the dime when he's in love and he promises you that he wants to marry you, but he never goes and sees your dad, he never takes any initiative. It's kind of, well, you know, you know, you know kind of like this. Please don't marry him. It's not going to work. I remember my brother Ron and Christine, they went with one together from the time they were about 15. They met at Word of Life. Christine started playing the flute and singing for my dad when she was about 11. In fact, she worked on my staff the summer that Mary and I were engaged at the ranch. And Christine and Ron started getting to know one another. Then they went with each other from about their junior year in high school. But about their senior year in high school, they do what a lot of couples do. They said, we need to break from each other. And we need to, you know, we need to date around. We need to find out whether or not we're really in love. And so they did that all the way through the last part of Christine's senior year. And somebody else took Christine to the party of her senior year. And when she graduated, somebody else was there. And Ron, a little bit later on that spring, was working on his car, which he did constantly. In fact, that's what caused a lot of the trouble. He would work on his car hour after hour after hour with Christine watching him work on his car. And she would pine away. His attitude was, I really love my car. I love working on all this mechanical stuff, and Christine's going to always be there. But suddenly he was working on his car all by himself, and Christine was gone. My mother came into the garage, looked at Ron, and Ron was pining, kind of like Naomi. And he came in and got a drink, and they sat down in the living room, and Mom said, Ron, what's the matter with you? You look like you lost your best friend. He says, I think I have. And Ron's usually this happy-go-lucky, joke-telling kind of a guy. And, man, his jaw was hanging off the floor. And Mom says, what's going on here? And Ron says, I don't like this idea of Christine dating all these guys. I don't like her out there doing all this kind of stuff. I'm not sure I like this present arrangement. So Mom says, well, what are you going to do about it? My brother's ordinarily very passive, very easy going. He got going. He got on the phone. He went to see her. And Mary and I had to go to a wedding a little bit north of Albany. 
in about a, na- a year after that. What I'm saying is that this principle in chapter 3, Naomi's very wise. When a man's really in love, he won't let a day go by. They'll start to take responsibility. When you're in love, you're going to need to fire away. You need to declare your love. And you need to do the things that need to be done in order to bring that about. When you know that it's of God, when you know that both parties are blessed by the Lord and the Lord has brought you together, the man needs to take care of his responsibilities. And that's a great evidence of his love. So we come to the last chapter of the book of Ruth. And Boaz calls all the men in the city together because there's a very complicated business transaction that has to take place. You see, Boaz is a near relative, but chapter 4 tells us that there's a closer relative. And the closer relative can buy Naomi's field, and with the field in the ancient world, he would have to take the widow of the man, of Elimelech that had died, and then he would have to raise up seed for Elimelech. And so there's a real catch in this story. You've got Ruth and Boaz desperately in love with each other, beautifully in love, but now there's a third party that might ruin everything. And he comes in with his black mustache and his black hat, and he is really going to mess everything up. But Boaz is smart. He gets all the people together. And he says at the city council, the city gate, to his near relative, Are you going to redeem the field of Naomi? He says, yes, I'll be glad to redeem the field. What farmer wouldn't like to have more fields? He says, I think it will be a great deal. Boaz says, okay, that will be fine. But if you redeem the field, you have to marry Ruth, the widow. Well, this man was already married. And he also knew that if he had to marry Ruth and if Ruth generated a child that he wouldn't get the field in the last place, but the son of Ruth would get the field so that the property could continue in the original hands of Elimelech where it was meant to be. He threw up his hand in consternation and says, Man, I cannot, cannot do it. Boaz says, I'm really sorry that you can't do it. (laughs) They exchanged shoes in the ancient world. Instead of shaking hands, they exchanged shoes. Instead of signing on the dotted line, The man goes out, and there's a great big wedding. And Boaz and Ruth are married. I want you to open and close into the very last chapter of the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, verse 13 in chapter 4. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. In chapter 1, it was impossible for Ruth to have a baby. And you're all going to go through time in your life where it seems impossible for God's blessing to ever come again. The story of Ruth is the story of the Almighty God working in just everyday life. The little short story I've told you today is a story like you lived. Just working in fields, romance, death, struggle, conflict, competition. It's where we all live every day. And sometimes as you're living out that story, you feel like, I'll never sing again. I'll never have a holiday again. And my message to you this Mother's Day is you can rediscover Mother's Day if, like Ruth and Naomi, even in the bitterness, if you focus on your faith in the Lord Jesus. Because he's the one that specializes in the twist of the story. And Ruth, the hopeless widow who could never have any kids, is now gathering with us on Mother's Day with a brand new baby. 
But that's not the ultimate twist. Look what it says here. It says, Pray to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout the land. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and you better than seven sons could ever love you. Then Naomi, the grandmother, took the child, laid him in her lap, and she cooed and she gurgled and she got the baby to smile. Just like grandmother is supposed to do on Mother's Day. The woman living there said, Naomi had a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you know the rest of the story. David became the king of Israel, who ultimately through his line produced the son of David, who you know his name shall be called Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I want to close with this. I want you to look at me, and I want to be very serious with you for a minute. Are you cynical this morning? Is your holiday being smothered in bitterness and hurt, feeling like I'll never sing again? It's hopeless. Ruth was a Moabite girl, totally out of the line of promise. She was a widowed Moabite girl. But the Yahweh of heaven, the greatest storyteller that ever lived, took this insignificant girl because of his relationship with her, because she loved him and because he loved her, because he's a God of grace. And he brought her out of the plains of Moab down to the Jordan Valley, up into a little city called Bethlehem. And the rest of the story is that she became King David's grandmother. It's by grace. And she rediscovered Mother's Day. She became part of the line of the Messiah. We started out this service singing praise and love to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. From a human standpoint, it was because of Ruth. Because Ruth was diligent in the field, diligent in her relationship with the Lord. But most of all, she was open to the twist in the story. Instead of being like her sister Orpah, who did the human thing, she did the logical thing. She did the thing that all human teachers would say, Orpah, that's what you need to do. Ruth made the radical decision to go with a relationship of faith in the Lord Jesus. And it was tough. And it looked hopeless. But that faith in God was rewarded because she became the mother of the line of the Messiah. I want every one of you to enter into that life, not like Orpah, following the usual human thing, but the life of Ruth, a life of believing in the Yahweh who will keep His promise. Rediscover Mother's Day in the promise of a Savior that can bring a Moabite girl and make her the mother of the Messiah.